that was my son Brent, who you saw on the video. Um, that just gave you a little bit of introduction about Southern Heights, and there are some good friends here that have been before, so some of you know what we're about and have visited several times, but I'm sure there's some, some of you back there that haven't visited, and of course will do after we've had this lecture tonight. <laughs> um, what I'm going to talk about is actually the endangered species which we're involved, we're involved with, involved with rather, and some of them I've been working with like 40 years, and um, these, some of these birds went down to very small numbers, like we're going to see the Hawaiian goose, which is on the screen right now, went down to about 45 in number. And this is the state bird of Hawaii, actually. It's the only state waterfowl bird that, uh, of any of the states, uh, the Hawaiian goose. And, uh, and it was only really through breeding them in captivity and then releasing them uh, that the birds have come back up into their numbers now. Um, so there's an awful lot to do with bringing birds into captivity in order to study them and also to breed them if you're going to then put them back into, into their wild environment. But it's not an easy task because the, um, the, the habitat is the main thing that they've got to have. Well, the first one I was involved with was this Hawaiian goose. And it's a strange bird because it's been pushed up into Hawaii, uh, up into the volcanoes there. And if you look very closely at the webs on the feet, you see that it's evolved, they only have half webs. This is because they don't have water to swim in. They just have the rainfall, and they get the dew off the grass. It's, well, not much grass up there, but they get dew off the, um, off the plants and things. So they don't swim or anything else, and the only way they can take a shower or a bath is when they have this rainfall. But the rainfall in some of these areas is like 240 inches a year, so they do have a lot of rain but it disappears into the lava. So, um, we, I worked in, what was obviously in America when I did this, it was in England, England and I took back 49 to, uh, to Maui and released them. And uh, they, were, they were watched after I left Hawaii and came back, back home by the state people <coughs> over there. And they did fairly well. Um, then they, they bred, but some lost and they bred, so the numbers really didn't go up drastically until we suddenly realized about 20 years ago, why did they want to be a goose up in a volcano? A goose lives on grassland. So we kind of rethought the whole thing and brought them down to areas where there's grass, and uh, they done tremendously well. And so the numbers way back up now. I'm really not sure what the numbers in Hawaii are at the moment, but we're up into the thousands. The thousands, so. Um, and that's a little baby one. Okay, so I'm going to go on fairly quickly because I'm supposed to do like 15 minutes of this and then we're going to be talking and getting uh, questions, I hope. But I'm just going to do you a few species that we're really involved with. So the Hawaiian goose is obviously a very important one and that's, we've worked pretty well with it and it's, it's not, it's endangered still, but it's back from the brink, shall we say. And that's... Up, that's up in the uh, in Maui, the Nene crossing. The other bird that I've been involved with over the years is called a white-headed duck from Spain. You saw a little bit on the video. The white-headed duck um, is is a bird rather. If you know a North American ruddy duck, it's a it's a smallish bird and is in the stiff tail family. The stiff tail means that the males do it like a display with the tail is kind of stiff. But it's rather bigger than the American uh, ruddy duck. And it's a very beautiful duck. And they went down to about 20 birds in Spain. And uh, the problem was uh, uh, habitat, and they were taking water away from the lakes to uh, uh, water their olive trees. And then what happened is it receded, so the rushes around the areas of the ponds uh, where the birds nested um, became vulnerable to rats and everything else. So the numbers went down very drastically, very quickly. So we've gone on top of the, uh, the water situation by going to the farmers and saying, please don't take quite as much water out, you don't really need to. The olives don't need that much water. And uh, then we've got a keeper to kill the rats and everything else around the area. And uh, so with the habitat, which I'm, habitat is very important. We've got the habitat right. But then we brought the eggs into captivity, reared them, and then we, put, we made a place. In the, I was doing this from England and then from... And then so we went back into Spain and trained some Spanish people, I trained them in England, to actually rear the birds in Spain and through a release program. You don't release the birds you rear, but in turn those birds will hatch eggs and those youngsters get released 
Uh, anyway, the story on this one is that we're now back up to 3,000 birds in Spain, which is probably about what it was originally. So there are some successes, but there are some that aren't. But, but, uh, so keep on the white end up. That's a little baby white end up at the end. Okay. What we saw just now on the video again was quite a lot of white-winged wood ducks flying around. Um, over the years I've been involved with these birds and uh, I actually own all the birds in the, in the United States. And what we do is we, we breed them and uh, I loan them to various zoos, private people, who, don't, uh, who will breed them for me and they'll send them back or else we... What we're trying to do, do is get a nucleus and enough birds that we could actually send them back to the areas they come from, which are, is Assam, Vietnam, Sumatra. And all those areas used to have lots of white-winged wood ducks. Now they have very few. Again, habitat. And the problem is, when you're doing something like this, if there isn't habitat, there's no... I'm afraid that, you know, what, what do you do about the ducks? Well, we're trying to maintain enough birds so that if there's some... For instance, in Sumatra right now, the, um, or in, in Cambodia, sorry, not Sumatra, um, Cambodia, the, the, uh, there's an area there where there's a rhinoceros, which is very rare, and they've created a very big refuge for the rhinoceros. Well, also, there's a lot of wetlands in there, which would be ideal to put white-winged wood ducks in. So, um, we're going to be working with the Conservation <coughs> Society and trying to reintroduce maybe white-winged wood ducks there. So as long as we have enough to be able to maybe send back eggs or even the birds back to the, the, the countries, that's why we keep going with them. But I say the habitat is always the problem. Okay. The other birds I'm working with at the moment, and the, in fact this is the Brazilian Maganzer. It's a very interesting bird because it's a, a fish-eating duck. And the only way it catches fish is through eyesight. It doesn't smell fish, so it has to see them. And they live on clear rivers. If they're at all clouded, the rivers, then uh, there's no way that these birds can survive. And this is the, we've just got permission this year, it's taken 10 years to do this, of work going down, etc., sorting the birds out. We've got permission to take eggs this year and bring them into an area which, in Brazil, we're going to rear them in Brazil. We have a place down there which is very good. And there's a, a fellow that I actually trained at Sylvan Heights, who's in charge of it. And this is a, it'll be very interesting because these birds have never been in captivity before and we want to learn more about them and how much they can see in even cloudy water. Because what's happening is the farmland, um, there's a lot more farmland in Brazil now and when it rains from the plough and everything else, all this silt gets washed down and the birds obviously trying to find fish and having a big problem. So in the areas where it's clear, they're doing very well, but we, we don't know how many there are, there's probably no more than 200 of these birds left. So this year we're going to be working back in Brazil, uh, going down in June, July, and collect some eggs from hopefully five different nests. Finding five different nests is another thing, but we'll find them. <laughs> Scaly-sided Maganza was another bird that became very rare, but we've had these in captivity now, and we're rearing them pretty well. Again, a certain habitat um, um, it's disappearing on the rivers. They, they go right over to Russia, actually, as well as in China. Um, this is rather a scruffy bird. In, in, he's actually in a molt, so he doesn't look prime, but he is actually nicer looking when he's in good plumage. Another bird that's been worked with is a Madagascan teal. And these were, came back into captivity, and we we're actually breeding a good number of these. And there are areas actually in Madagascar they can be returned to. Um, a couple of lakes back there. There's also another bird actually in Madagascar called the Madagascar potted, we thought was extinct, but was found to be nesting in one of the lakes where the Bernier seal comes from. So we can work with those. Um, the um, one we're working with in Venezuela, which I've been doing also for the last 10 years, is the Orinoco goose, but uh, right now it's, the climate down there is difficult for us to go down because uh, the political situation is a little dicey. Uh, as you probably know. But uh, uh, this is a bird that can be, we don't have to take them necessarily into captivity, though we have Orinoco geese in captivity, but just by putting nest boxes up, um, these birds actually nest in nest boxes and trees in the wild. And the reason is they're not doing as well is that the, the farmers have taken all the trees down, 
So the nearest trees to the swamps and the grasslands that these birds will rear their youngsters in is about 15 miles. So what they, by the time they walk their clutch from hatching from the, the forest 15 miles, there aren't many of them left. So if we can put up nest boxes actually on the areas they're going to be reared, um, they don't have to walk so far and they do pretty well. So that's what our project is there. I've quickly gone through some of the birds that we're dealing with. These are probably the most important ones at the moment. Um, and that's some of our work. But education, obviously, is an important part of it too. And uh, there are, when you go to a country and you, you, you say, look, you, let's protect these birds. It's very difficult, you know, if you go to a, a, a sort of a third world country and tell these natives that you've got to protect the birds. What I find that I've done in, oh, I, in, in Guatemala and Venezuela and Cambodia and places like that, if you don't give the people something, they're not going to help you. So what we're doing in Cambodia at the moment is actually giving the local people $100 to protect the white-winged wood ducks. $100 to them lasts the money. I mean, it's a lot of money to them. They're going to make sure those birds are protected because they want you to come back next year and give them another $100. But it, 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 so what I'm saying, there was another one in Guatemala is that they had a tree duck down there called the black-bellied tree duck, and it was going down in numbers drastically, and they were taking their eggs, etc. So there are another bird you can put nest boxes down there for. So we introduced nest boxes, and we told the, 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 the villagers or the natives around, take the first clutch of eggs, and then the birds will go back and nest, but leave the next clutch. And they kind of farm them. There are more black-bellied tree ducks down there that they know what to do with now, because all the natives decided to put out their own nest boxes, because it's a good way of farming. And uh, they've done tremendously well. So what I'm trying to say is that you go into these countries, you have to give the people something if they're going to help you. And I've seen it so many times that you, know, you go in there and the people have gone in and say, we've got to protect us from that, but you know, without giving the people thought. And uh, so it's, it's not just an easy thing to do is rear them in captivity and let them out. That doesn't work either. So there's an awful lot of work to do on it. I've probably gone over my 15 minutes, so um, are you all right? It's Q&A. Um, it's Q&A, yeah. right. There's questions here. So um, I'm open to anybody who'd like to. You can ask me anything about Sylvan Heights. Endangered species or how an egg hatches, I don't mind. <laughs> yes, ma'am. What do you do with quarantine and diseases? If you've got birds from all over the world, aren't you like, bringing in viruses? The way the birds are quarantined, they come in for 30 days in New York, and then we quarantine them when they come out of quarantine, so hopefully everything's finished with by then. They're very, very hardy, most waterfowl are, we don't get a lot of problems. Um, I guess our main thing is that old age, really, and old age can be seven or eight years in some of the ducks. If, if one bird has any problems, all birds get back. Yeah, so, yeah, we had, very, a, very good yeah we, we had a, uh, um, a bunch of birds come in uh, two years ago from Europe, and one of the birds tested of a dormant Newcastle, which actually is a dormant Newcastle, not a live Newcastle, a dormant one, and everything had to be sent back again. That was a very expensive ordeal. Yes, sir. The weather's been unusually uh, cold. Is that a, a special problem for you now? Well, um, cold is a special problem for some of the... I mean, we've got parrots and types that have to go inside for winter quarters. Oh, okay. But waterfowl um, have the advantage of having two types of feathers. They have an inner feather, which is a down feather. You've heard of Eddie Bauer jackets and things, which is a down jacket. In fact, they still farm eider down in Iceland, and that's the feathers they pull from the inside and line the nest with. The outer feather is an oiled feather. You always see waterfowl preening the whole time, keeping their feathers immaculate. This becomes waterproof, also windproof. So really, um, any northern species or waterfowl, all they have to do is tuck their feet in their feathers and put their head around like that so the beak isn't showing, they're fine. Birds that get a little vulnerable are the tree ducks, which are long-legged birds, which can't tuck their feathers completely, their, their feet right in. Um, but we, we get away with it at Sylvan Heights because all our water is well water, comes out at 56 degrees, so we don't have any freezing. We keep all our flamingos out, even through all the cold weather. They have no problem. So, yes, 
so we have an advantage there. But the, the, the tropical birds are put inside uh, for the winter. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I have two questions. Well, first, like, how do you like, um, go about finding these birds? You've got all these birds like, all over the world. I don't know, I just want to know how you find them, and what's your favorite? Okay, uh, I mean, I've been fortunate to go all over the world collecting and bringing birds back into captivity. And when I first did it, I went to collect adult birds. I mean, in Iceland and Africa and things like that, my first trips were collecting adult birds. And then I decided that isn't the way you go. If you bring a bird back into captivity, and it's an adult bird, whether it's a migratory bird, which is very unfair on a bird because you take it in captivity, come spring it wants to go north, so it never settles down, so you never breed them very well. So I decided to do eggs, so I developed egg incubators that I could take on aeroplanes. Much more difficult now to take them on aeroplanes. <laughs> and I brought eggs back from Australia, I brought them back from all over the world, bring them back into captivity, or into our situation, Hatch the eggs, they know nothing else about the wild, within nine months to a year, I've got those birds breeding. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> uh, my favourite birds. My favourite birds used to be when I came back from a trip, like when I went to Australia, the pinky had, uh, had never been kept before, and I brought the eggs back, hatched them, reared them, and had them breeding for us in uh, nine months. That was my favourite bird for that year. So I, so I like change. I change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I'm careful with your questions. <laughs> um, a lot of the, um, the species that you've been reintroducing are island endemics. Yeah. I wondered if that, if there's a particular reason for that, or whether maybe migrant birds have particular challenges about reintroducing them, or that it's just because those ones are the well, ones of conservation. You're pretty much right on that. I mean, the Hawaiian goose, the lace and teal, are all island birds. And there are never that many to start with. And they're all very, very much in bread, too. I mean, the lace and teal went down to, like, uh, two birds. Whatever, and bread and bread and bread. And they're back in the lace and island. You can't hold them by like, uh, um, And the Hawaiian goose obviously wasn't. I mean, they come from like a lace and teal, originated probably from the mallard family. Hawaiian goose, related probably from the Canada goose. So on a migratory trip many, many years ago, they got away late and they decided they were in Hawaii and it was nice and warm and they want to go back up, I don't know. But a lot of these island birds, that's how they became, how they became there. But over the years, yes, the island birds are the ones that are diminishing or disappearing. Would it be possible, I'm sorry, <laughs> oh, would it be possible to do the same thing with, with some of the migrants? Like, you know, I'm thinking black duck or, or just kind of... Yes, it is. Uh, when you mean American black ducks and things? Yeah, things like that. Yeah, I mean, you, you can do it, but the, the migratory thing has that instinct going. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to breed it out of them if they have it. But, they, you know, when you take the eggs, they can make it as great as they usually are. How do you keep track of which birds are going extinct and you need to grab them up? <laughs> um, well, there's pretty much no. I mean, these days, people working all over the world, and we, we, we kind of try and keep tabs on you know, what's becoming very rare. And uh, I mean, the birds. Were, there are other species up there. We, I'm like, we didn't put on pictures tonight, but uh, uh, that we're, we're watching very closely. I mean, for instance, in, in the Iraq War, nobody realised that there was a big swamp there. Uh, and then had one of the, 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 almost the world's population of marble teal. And Saddam Hussein drained that whole swamp out to get the people, whatever it was, that lived there out of there. And pretty much eradicated many marble teal. But we think they're easy enough to breathe, and uh, so that, you know, we, we're on top of that. But you know, there, there are things like Vietnam, for instance. That's where the white winged wood duck used to be. You know what killed them off? Asian orange. You know, so I mean, there's an awful lot of human <laughs> problems <laughs> that occurred. Yeah, I've got, ha yes? Um, have any of your conservation work included working with the waterfowl that has been affected by oil spills? Uh, yes, um, the first one I did was Torrey Canyon. I've probably never even heard of that one. This was one in England. And uh, this is when we first used, um, we used the type of, it wasn't, wasn't what you use over here like a fairy lifted and um, it, was, it was terrible because I forget how many birds that we had and we didn't really know what we were doing. And the thing about an oil spill, 
by the time you get the bird, he's ingested it. That's the end of the bird. And if you can get the bird without him ingesting it very quickly, you can get the oil off him and then get the waterproof from the back, you've got a hope. But I forget, I mean, I forget how many birds we had in 3,000 birds, and I released maybe 60. And that, that was the very first time. And I wasn't really involved with the extra Valdez, but I was in, asked about certain things, but I didn't go over the Yes, sir? What got you first interested in water birds? Well, um, it, it was because of um, a chap called Sir Peter Scott, who is an artist and also a naturalist. And uh, he started this wildfowl trust in England. And um, that was like a collection of birds, waterfowl, but also had a refuge there where you could see the wild birds coming in. And at my age, there was no raptor center. There was nothing else going on. And I, I think if it had been a raptor center, I might have gone into hawks and eagles and things like that. Because they kind of fascinated me when I was younger. But then waterfowl, when I got involved with that, I just never looked back. I just, they fascinated me even more. And the thing about waterfowl, there are so many species all over the world, and I wanted to travel the world, so it was a good mixture. Really. Yes? Right, okay. 
Uh, I mean, if I really look, it depends when you're an optimist or a pessimist. Are you Well, I am an optimist. I mean, I have a saying, uh, I'd rather see a live bird in captivity than a dead one in the museum, or the same bird dead in the museum. So there's always a little hope if I got a live bird. Yeah, <clears throat> Just to go back, you were talking about some of the things about um, the problems of inbreeding when you get so low right. in numbers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in your experience with the waterfowl, have you seen any instances genetically of you know, an increased rate of different you know, recessive genes or traits coming yeah, out? Yeah, I mean, you definitely have on certain ones. But it's very difficult to work out because I just mentioned over here a lace and teal that went down to like one bird or something. And so we know that we've bred them brother and sister for so many generations now, no problems at all. But we have problems with the Hawaiian goose. We have had problems with them producing birds that were like cottony, the down is very thin. And, um, so we, you know, we put it down for inbreeding. Um, there's an awful lot we don't know about inbreeding. I mean, if you look for, say you go to Africa, I'm taking off the birds a little bit, but if you go to the wild animals in Africa, it's the strongest that survive. It could be a bull, uh, a cake buffalo, that breeds with his daughter, because they're the strongest cooked animals. So, meaning that, I don't think we really know enough about it. But we, I certainly see it in certain species, and I wonder why it's in those species and not others. Well, and just have you seen any of your populations released that have had issues in the wild and they're released? Well, I haven't released that many. I mean, you know, I've shown you a few that have been successful. And, and the white-headed duck isn't having no problems at all with it. Um, and um, so, I haven't written in the nascent deal we put back in the problems. Yes, sir. Special migration a couple of times. The ducks have repeated at both heights. What's the percentage of them that you've raised Well, um, geese, say, say you take geese, for instance, take snow geese. And if you bring snow goose eggs in from the wild, as I've done before, and you rear them together, there are still, from those eggs, I've seen that migratory sort of thing come by spring, a little bit, you know, they run up and down a little bit. But if, once they breed, their next offspring loses them. So if, after a while, that migration has gone away from them. Are you hooked up at all with the, the genome people who are doing all this research on all the life forms on the earth and putting it all on the internet for everybody to use all that information? You have to ask my son, he's the internet guy. I'm oh. still on back. Okay. <laughs> no? <laughs> I do a lot of stuff on the internet, but not the... Yeah, no, we're, we're, yeah, I mean, we're hooked up with a lot of people, but I'm not sure we're hooked up. Okay. Yes, we can find stuff, we can find stuff. Are you involved, you said you are hooked up with other people, are you involved associated with other wildlife or conservation groups like World yes. Wildlife? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, World Wildlife Fund, uh, not so much for them, we'd like, you know, but uh, we'll see, yeah. like, like the people, uh, like the Wildlife Trust in England, the people in Spain, all over the world, we're hooked up with different people. Yeah. Yeah. They give you money? Ah, I wish they did. They 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 usually don't get money from us. They come down the path, but yeah. that's that'll be a good one. Nowadays, there's a lot more networking and working together. Yeah. People that aren't working together are missing out. So. Sharing information. Yeah, sharing information. Support people. You want when you come out of eggs, you have to have those quarantines. Ah, it depends, really. Not necessarily. Well, there's certain rules up, for instance, I can bring eggs from England as long as the flock of origin is being tested for egg drop syndrome. That's a similar flock. Out of the wild, it's not difficult to do. Uh, so, for certain countries, I can bring eggs in from, like Chile is okay to bring eggs in from. But anywhere there's Newcastle's disease, I can't do that. So, they can't. Hello? Um, do you name your birds? Sorry? Do you name your birds? Uh, some of them have got names, those are the ones we use in our education. 
our ambassadors. You know, they're ones that are famous. And, uh, I don't like naming the birds because usually when you name the bird, it dies and makes it famous.
wetland birds being from flamingos to ibis to herons to avocets to uh, all this is a wake in Georgia. Then we have 45 species of others. Others being education birds from parrots to pheasants to emus and a lot of species. We actually have the, the, the only, the, the largest collection of um, species of water, uh, of birds, uh, the only people that have got more birds in the country are San Diego Zoo. Um, yeah, that's pretty well yeah. Sorry, it's Has the Obama administration been helpful to your efforts? Have they made any changes that... Oh, Obama? Uh, uh, not, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not yet. I don't... Um, you're talking about the president, right? Yeah, yeah. You're talking about Obama. Obama, you're talking about Brazilian and the federal officials and all that. No, not so far. Uh, sorry, yes, you mind. So San Diego Zoo has more birds than you all No, there are more species. More species. Yeah. We have, we have three and a half thousand birds. We probably have more birds than anybody else. Yeah. And you have the most waterfowl in the world? Yes. Yeah, species. How about birds, like birds in general wise? But birds in general, we have three and a half thousand birds. Yes. Uh, no, is it Singapore? The, well, the Jurong Park. Jurong Park in Singapore has the But we're actually not being able to have as many. No, no, that is not a thing to have more birds than anybody else. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Maybe uh, uh, the younger audience here, uh, anything you kind of come across locally in East North Carolina that these guys can do to kind of help out, you know, conservation well, in East well, Eastern North Carolina? Well, Eastern North Carolina has got a lot to offer on our waterfowl front. I mean, we have a, a, the migratory birds that come down during the winter is one of the, the, the largest areas, I and mean, like Madame Mesquite and things where you've got nearly 100,000 hundred swans and an awful lot of waterfowl. So really, um, North Carolina is a very important part of waterfowl, part of American service. Um, but, I, I mean, it depends what they, they think of going into this sort of work, or they're just kind of interested. It just means that Maybe they should know about how they can help, you know, just conservation in general, and, and also with, you know, you talk about education as well. Right. Like what kind of opportunities? Well, I, I think the main thing is to learn about it, um, learn about waterfowl, learn about birds, and then you, you, you know you'll you'll know more about how they going to live and, and what their habit the habitat should be, and whether you put nest boxes up or whatever. You know, there's an awful lot of things. So first of all, you've got to kind of learn about them. Um, you know, that's how I kind of got my interest, I think, from a very, very early age. Is that I used to go out with my mother when I was about seven and look at like an owl's nest or something. And then that's how my interest was. And I wondered how, you know, why, what. And, um, but it actually to help, you know, conservation, um, there are so many different programs now that are going on. Um, and I think what you've got to do is kind of pick an area of, of the birds or animals or whatever you want to be in. Uh, you want to sort of help protect the red wolf from the, the people down there who like your pet. And uh, in most walks of life or on, on any of these uh, conservation areas, um, to start with, and if you can give your services, and then it can lead into Yes. What are some examples of volunteer opportunities that you have at Silicon? Well, specifically, you know. there again, we have volunteers that help do the grounds and the gardens and everything else. But on, on the, the bird side of it, they come in and they, they actually work by feeding the birds, they work by cleaning the ponds, they work by watching how we hatch them, and then they take the broody chickens off the eggs and things. That's how the volunteers, basically how they get their interest, and that's how the volunteers work. We need those people because um, in the spring, uh, we have an awful lot going on, and our regular staff are really hard pushed to do everything. So really, the volunteers help us tremendous amount. So people could volunteer for like a day, sure. a week, yeah. something, yeah, or half a day? Yeah, uh, okay. I mean, half a day is nothing. It's got to be a day. The time you get there and leave, sure. you know, all day. Anyway. What's the best time of year to well, the, the best time to, to visit really is all the way through from now until spring, uh, because the birds are all in wonderful plumage. 
The summer, unfortunately, is the worst time to visit because a lot of our birds go out of the But there again, all that, that's why we have these other species. They're always showing you, and like what about species of others, and the wetland birds, and we're always showing you. Some of the waterfowl, they take on this uh, grass plumage. The males do this, they molt it, and with waterfowl, when they molt, they become flightless. And all when they become flightless, therefore, um, they want to look like the females, and the females always look camouflaged, and you know they're always dull. And so suddenly you're looking around, and so I saw all those lovely wood ducks last time I was here, what did you dump with them? Well, there they are, they're in the molten. Will you bend your ear on the Yeah, bend your well, we do a lot of it ourselves, but with the state, uh, the state can help us out when they can. And we had a veterinarian from Akron who was working with us. I know he's in Ohio, but we, um, and we got various vets we can call on. But we don't have a local vet at all. And my local vet is in uh, Williamson, but he, he doesn't know anything about birds, so I don't need it to us. <laughs> so it is difficult. It is difficult. Does Raleigh not tell people? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they come out all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they got a program at State. Yeah, in fact, they, should they bring them out uh, well, once a month at least? They so they help us a lot. <laughs> well, you're talking about the, the wonderful waterfowls that we have here naturally, right. and all of the fantastic birds that we have here in eastern North Carolina. Yeah. How can we get people more interested about viewing birds as a tourist activity? Because, I mean, we have the North Carolina Birding Trail now. Right. Yeah. Um, but what, I'm, I'm wondering, like, with your experience from the UK and so on, what, because birding well, is a huge hobby there. So why can't we get more I, I don't know. The, the, well, the, the UK, you are a, a different breed of people, personally. <laughs> they go out when it, because, because it's always raining in England or wherever it is, um, it doesn't make any difference whether they go out in the rain or not. Here we fucking... You know, the weather has a whole lot to do with people coming out and seeing birds. And I do have an answer to that one. Because, oh, uh, <laughs> most local people, so a lot of it is we live around here. And I wonder, how many of you here in here have been to Mammoth and see the swamp? Raise your hand. Okay. See, that's part of the problem. If this whole room had raised their hands, that experience, if, if, if one thing you guys can do, other than come, of course, visiting us at Silver Heights, is go down to Mammoth this time of year and see those thousands of swans. I'm Even sure if you're not a bird person, it's one of those moments you're just, wow. It's just loud, there's all these birds coming over you. Yeah. If you have that moment, you want to share it, and then that's how it's going to start. More people want to come, your family and friends and all that. So that's my opinion. Yeah, but well, there are two sorts of bird watchers, of course. Yeah. One's the twitches, which are like a stamp collector, and you see the bird twitches and goes off somewhere else. And the other people don't mind seeing the bird again. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sir. Hey, uh, you mentioned the brooding chickens a minute ago. Yeah. Would you take um, these guys through, like, if you're in your captive breeding program, kind of like the steps of what would happen, you know, from, from I guess, conception? Or you want to do that now? Yeah, just briefly. Okay. Right. What, what happens is, um, because the way we're set up with all these birds in, in captivity, they, they lay their eggs maybe in boxes, etc. And, um, we can't really let them hatch them out because there's too much competition and we lose the baby. So what we do is we take the eggs, we artificially sit them. And I find that incubators aren't fantastic at the starting eggs off. So the bird itself is the best, the mother is the best. And I find the second best is a broody bantam or chicken. So I start off a lot of the eggs and the chickens. We have about 150 chickens in a house, which is about two miles away, because we don't want to have chickens on the place because disease, etc. Anyway, what we do, um, after 15 days of these chickens sitting on the eggs, they go into our incubators. And our incubators are all different types of incubators for the different species. Some of them require more humidity, less humidity. And then they go to another incubator to hatch. The incubation period is about 28 days. And we keep an eye on the eggs. We handle the eggs every day because the time the egg is laid, it's going to lose, by the time it hatches, it's going to lose 15% of its weight. And if it doesn't do that, you're going to have a problem with the bird hatching. So we don't actually weigh the eggs that we can actually tell by the air sac. Okay. So then when we get to the you know, hatching, we put them in a hatching incubator, hatch them, and then they go into the rearing process. 
But there again, you have to come down and volunteer and you can see how to do it. <laughs> Does that help you? <laughs> right. Um, so when you put the animals back into their natural habitat, right. has they been in captivity? Ah, like, you, you missed the point a little bit. Like, I mean, I didn't probably express myself well. What we do, we never release the birds we rear in captivity. What I do is I take them back to an area which has been made up for, for breeding these birds. And then like in Spain, there was a pond uh, and a habitat and a netted over area. These birds, the pair, the ones we reared, went there. They actually laid the eggs in there and reared the babies. As the babies got bigger, we pulled the netting back over the top. And then the parents actually pushed the babies out and they flew out. So they, we, we never touched those birds when they were being reared. So we watched them, and so they were parent reared. They had no human uh, attachment. So when they were, when they flew away, they were wild birds. So we never released um, birds in, you know, that we raised in captivity. Not with waterfowl. Cranes that they're doing now have been different because they rear them with puppets and things that look like cranes. Like a little bit different. But with the waterfowl, we, we don't do that. Yes. Um, when I was a kid, my mom said that if you touched a bird's eggs with your bare hands, that the mother would like then not like sit on it again because it recognized. No, that's that true. Awesome. I always thought it was. No, no. I mean, it, <laughs> no. If it's a, a deer, you know, like a baby's deer, if you, you touch it a lot, sometimes they will leave. But with, with birds, uh, no, that won't happen. Uh, the bird is an interesting thing is that uh, some of our species of waterfowl they may need. 12 eggs to 15 eggs, and it's a bunch of eggs, that's a lot of eggs, right? Um, but what we do, we trade our eggs over for wooden eggs, if it's very hot, we don't want the eggs to get cooked in the sun, or if it's cold, we don't want them to freeze. But we only put up to four wooden eggs, it's a replica of these eggs, right? Because the bird never counts more than four. But if we didn't put up to four, they might not lay again. But um, we found that we don't have to put 15 eggs in. budget 
So, but I usually get people to help me a little bit in the other end and also. Have they identified the nest in advance? No, no. no. You just go find them? No, I have to go find them. Yeah. Or climbing the dirt in South America, um, I had to go down cliffs uh, at the edges of the rivers to, to get torrent nests. But I had somebody on the other side of, of this tor torrential rivers that were coming down from the Andes, and we marked that the birds come off. It's a 40 day incubation. The female comes off twice a day. She comes off in the morning and in the afternoon. So actually, she'll give the nest away. So that's how we find the nest. So you stay there with an optimism. She comes off, the male will get her and stick her back in the feet for 20 minutes or so. Then she goes back up and then she flies up to the nest. So you mark it. It's always on the other side, of course. <laughs> and the only way, so we mark, say, seven nests or so. So once we've got them all marked, and then what I would do is we hire a horse or whatever else to go on the other side and come along the cliff and with a walk of talk here and my other guy on this side and say, right, we're, you're about opposite now. Then you swing the rope down and come on down and you say a bit further, whatever it was. And one time coming down, I said, yeah, I think you're about there and I put my foot right on the nest with three eggs on. They only laid three eggs in the cup, so it wasn't very good. But, um, but then, I mean, then what you've got to do in the incubator, is on the other side of the river, right? And you're talking about a river that's 150 foot wide, you know, really even more. So then you've got to work out how to get that uh, eggs from that side to the other side. And so we worked out that we threw a rope on there, and basically you have a round bit that the rope comes back to you. So you face, you, you put, you have a little a creel. You know what a fishing creel is? So they, they, they now put stuff in the creel, so it can take quite a lot of banging around. So you, 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 you pull back on the rope so everybody's tight, and you, you hook it to the, the rope, and then you do this, and you get it over the other side. But, and sometimes you have you know, to work out different things on the trip. You don't have all the ropes and things that you want. And there was a bridge that one of these torrents nested on underneath, and the rope just roared underneath it. And there seemed to be no way of getting a rope you know, around the bridge in order to go underneath to get it. So I worked out that if you, you loop down a piece of, another piece of rope, looped it down like that, and you can actually sling. Um, I had a special thing made up for me years ago, which is like a little disc made of lead, and it, it, it's for actually putting up into trees. Yeah. So you can swing it up in the tree, it never sticks in the tree because it rolls over. So this is what I took with me anyway. So you throw underneath the bridge, which isn't a particularly wide bridge, I mean, you know, it's probably like 15 feet, maybe more than that. And you catch it when it goes through. And then you can, once you've caught it, you pull a loop on, and you've got the rope, and you can go all the way around with the rope, and then you can go up underneath and do what you have to do. Sometimes you have to be inventive with these things. 